Psalm 40. Um, for the sake of those who might not have been here from the beginning, I just want to remind you um, that the book of Psalms is divided up into several smaller books. Um, so when we look at the book of Psalms in our English Bibles, we, we just have one book of Psalms. Um, but we have been focusing, and in, in our um, sermon series is on book one, and that is drawing to a close. Uh, book one is verses or chapters one through forty-one of the Psalter, and this book, obviously, uh, forty stands right here at the end of the book of that first book, and it seems to mark a moment when David was last delivered, right? So up until this point, David has pretty much been on the run. We, we start out with Psalm 1 and 2 talking about the, the blessed man, the righteous man who pursues God. And then it kind of turns into this narrative, this story that follows along with David's life while he was fleeing from Saul. And there's countless different kinds of enemies coming after him through that process. And ultimately, we end up here in Psalm 40, and, it, and it's signaling an end to the period in which David was being persecuted by Saul. And, and this is kind of the beginning of his reign over Israel. This experience that we see in David's life, though, as we've talked about over and over, also be, seems to be pointing to something in the future, that there's something that this is pointing to. This is almost like a shadow, if you will, of something to come. And we've, we've talked about that, and, and I've tried, and I hope as we've preached through this, and Jamie has preached through this, that, that we've connected those shadows back to the character of Jesus. Jesus is the one that stands at, at the center of human existence. And David is pointing forward to him as we today look back to him for our salvation. So David is coming to the end of his persecution in the same way that Jesus was coming to the end of his persecution. And if you remember, though, that, that Jesus entered his glory, how? By ruling and reigning or through suffering? It was through suffering, right? And, and David is coming to the place to where he is ruling and reigning, but he does that only through the suffering he experiences at the hand of Saul and all the people that have been trying to kill him. And, and out of that suffering, he begins to reign. He comes into his glory in the same way that our Savior suffered for us on the cross. Died an agonizing death so that he too could enter into his glory and rule and reign forever. Just really quickly, this is, I want to kind of give you an overview. So, as we're reading through the psalm together, give you some connection points. David relates to how he waited on the Lord in the first three verses of this psalm and how the Lord delivered him, how the Lord came through for him. Then, in verses four through five, David pronounces a blessing on the one who trusts in the Lord. Again, hearkening our minds back to Psalm chapter one, trying to remind us about blessed is the one who places their trust in the Lord. And he speaks of God's wondrous and, and innumerable gifts that he gives his people. And then in verse 8, David announces his pleasure 
to please God. Before detailing his, his proclamation of the Lord's righteousness, he's trying to, to help us to understand who God is in this section. He, he's teaching us about his steadfast love, about his, his truth and his salvation. In verses 9 through 11. And also announcing God's unwavering loving kindness for each and every one of us. His, his steadfast love. And then David at the end reiterates the, the two problems that he has that, that prompt him to go to God. To prompt him to turn to God. And I would argue these are the same two problems we have this morning. First, in verses 12 through 13, David describes how sinful he is. And then second, in verses 14 and 15, he resumes his call for, for shaming his enemies. David, David closes this with a, a prayer in verses 16 through 17 that those who love God's salvation should praise him. And then he follows that up with a confident assertion that God will be sure to help and swiftly deliver. So we're going to put this up on the TV behind us, and if you would, read along with us Psalm chapter 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told thee glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be blessed, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. Let those put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame 
who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Amen. I just want to tell y'all, I'm getting really impressed by y'all. Like normally there's a pretty big drop off about the 11th verse, but today you, you, guys, you guys hung with it. I'm impressed. I want to separate this psalm and break it up into three sections as we look at it this morning. I want to kind of cover verses 1 through 5, and, and my kind of topic or subheading there, if you're taking notes, is delivered by God. Then second, I want to look at verses 6 through 11, and, and the subheading you could put there is the proclamation of God's salvation. And then finally, in verses 12 through 17, I want to kind of cover that one as God's deliverance. So delivered by God, the proclamation of God's salvation, and then God's deliverance. So let's look at those. In, in the first one, they're delivered by God. And again, over the past few Psalms, there seems to have been an emphasis, I don't know if you've noticed this, but on waiting on the Lord. I feel like it's something I've repeated a lot as we've been preaching through the 30s uh, of, of the Psalms. So you can look back specifically like Psalm 39.7, 38.15, and see those references to waiting on the Lord, being patient as we wait on the Lord. Notice how David frames that in verse 1. I waited patiently. Right? Two, two words that kind of basically mean the same thing, but, but one being more passive and then one being more active. Showing that David is, is choosing to wait upon the Lord. He realizes in, in some ways he has to, right? He, he's not God. But, but not just that. He didn't just come to this realization and just kind of give up and say, okay, well, I guess I got to wait. But no, he waited patiently. He, he actively was training his heart to look forward to what God was going to do in God's timing, not his own. And now in Psalm 40, David says that God has heard his cry. He inclined to me. And heard my cry, the second part of verse 1. Then in verse 2, David uses poetic language to describe what the Lord did for him. The Lord lifted him up out of the pit of destruction and placed him on a high mountain. He went from being on quicksand to solid ground. The Lord rescued David and made him secure. We, we have no evidence. David may have at some point been in a miry bog, he may have been in a pit of destruction, but we have no evidence of that from Scripture. So it seems to be pointing to the fact that David is using this poetic language here to describe what God has done for him. But it is interesting, like I talked about last week, sometimes there are these, these hyperlinks in the text that kind of point us back to other people. The word used here for pit is the same word that's used over and over to describe the pit that Joseph was thrown into. And so perhaps here David is trying to connect through poetic license his life, his struggles, back with that of Joseph's life and his struggles. In other words, when, when Joseph was lifted out of the pit, what did he do? He reigned over Egypt, right? 
Likewise, David now is being lifted out of the pit to reign over Israel. The Lord at last delivers David here at the end of book one of this altar. And this deliverance leads to a new song. And I've spoke about this as we've preached through previous psalms, what, what it means to sing a new song. But just really quickly, I just want to remind you that as God continues to deliver his people, it should lead his people to write new songs about God's faithfulness. Right? You, you don't want to sing the songs about how God delivered David or how God delivered Joseph. There's nothing wrong with singing those songs, but as God continues to move, as God continues to lift people out of the miry bog and, and deliver them from the pit, it should cause God's people to write new songs about what God has done for them, leading God's people to praise Him, not only for what He's done in the past, but showing a pattern of faithfulness that we as Christians today can sing songs from thousands of years ago about how God delivered his people. And we add to that songbook another chapter that perhaps a hundred or two hundred years if the Lord tarries, that some future Christians will be singing. And it recounts the glory and the faithfulness, the steadfast love of our Savior as we enter that new song in the songbook of praise to the one who delivers us. This morning we, we were singing that song, Though He Slay Us. That, that's a relatively new song in, in light of church history. But, but it's, it's a great one to be inserted into the songbook for us to sing year after year, decade after decade, along with all of the songs that point to God's glory and God's faithfulness. That's why. We write these new songs so that others may see and fear and put their trust in the Lord, as David says at the end of verse 3 there. And David closes this section by reflecting on the, the righteous way of life. Again, this should, this should point our minds back as a hyperlink back to verse 1, right? Or, or excuse me, Psalm 1. And help us to see, okay, this is, this is connecting the beginning and the end of the book. I don't know if you know this. Here's a cheap trick, especially if you're young, you're in college, you're in high school. You have to read a book. It's a nonfiction book. Or excuse me, yeah, a nonfiction book. Authors can't help but repeat themselves. You want to read a book fast? Read the last three pages of every chapter, and you will have all the main points of the book. And just like that, here, the, the, the author is pointing back to what he started with. He's, he's circling back around of, of what it looks like to be a blessed man who waits and trusts in the Lord. We, we've been given lots of illustrations about that, but 40 and 41 are, are closing out the book, and it's, it's kind of rehearsing what he's been trying to tell us all along. David blesses those who trust in the Lord rather than in themselves. David says that those who, who put trust in themselves go astray after a lie. Big picture. The Psalter, book one. Trust in God, not yourself. 
If you think you can do it, if you think you can earn it, if you think you can muster what it takes to make God happy, you're believing a lie. And David, want, David wants to point you to the truth. Again, David is reflecting on the way that God preserved him from Saul. Despite so many attempts on his life. Despite being outnumbered. David finishes by praising God for his many wondrous deeds. Just too many to count. I can't even count them, David says. And David shifts now in this next section in verses 6 through 11 to, to God's greatest deed. To the most miraculous thing that God has ever done. And this is the section where David proclaims God's salvation. The proclamation of God's salvation, verses 6 through 11. But before getting to the good news, David backtracks to cover some bad news. In verses 6 through 8, David is recalling Samuel's confrontation with Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 28. I want to read that to you, but before I do, let me give you a little bit of a background. I know many of you probably didn't wake up this morning and your, your daily Bible reading was 1 Samuel. Maybe some of you, it was, praise God. But for most of you, the Old Testament's not your go-to place for your morning devotionals, right? But in, in 1 Samuel, God commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites, sparing not even their, their livestock because of the way that they had treated God's people. But Saul didn't do that. Instead, Saul went and defeated the nation, but he spared their king, Agog, and he kept the best of their livestock. And then God sent Samuel to confront him. And Saul argued, well, I kept the livestock because I wanted to make an offering to God. Now, in Saul's mind, it was like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to do something good here. I, I, I want to Make this, this offering and just, just praise God for what he's done. But then Samuel says these words in verse 22. And I think we have this. We can put up on the screen for you. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen is than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, because you've rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel then goes on in verse 26 to restate Saul's rejection before declaring to Saul that, that God has torn him from the kingdom and given it to someone better than Saul. Verse 26, and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore and Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it 
to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. If you continue to read 1 Samuel, the very next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel goes and anoints David to be the king, taking Saul's place. And in that moment, the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul and rushes into David. See that in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 16. And this is a, a turning point in the history of Israel, and it, it also seems to be the overall theme, the overall turning point in the first book of the Psalter. In verse 6, David points, David's point is that the Lord wants obedience, not sacrifice. You see, sacrifice is only needed if you are unsuccessful at obedience. Let me say that again. Sacrifice is only needed if you are unsuccessful at obedience. Obedience is always God's first choice. It's what God has always wanted. Just like in the garden, right? With Adam and Eve, what he wanted was obedience. Yet despite that, he provides the opportunity to make sacrifice for those who try and fail to obey. The Lord has enabled David to hear and obey. In verse 7, David sees that, that God has promised a king from Judah to bring deliverance. And he saw that that was partly being fulfilled in himself when Samuel anointed him king. And yet David also knew that he was not the ultimate one prophesied about. You know that from reading Psalm 110 that we're going to cover later. We know this because of what we read in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, that, that Jamie read earlier. Consequently, in verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. We can see here in Psalm 40 how it points to Jesus. God did not desire Saul's sinful sacrifice, but instead wanted obedience. David takes his place as the one who will obey. Likewise, Jesus, God did not desire that the Old Testament sacrifices, but he desired obedience. And that's why Jesus had to come. Remember, sacrifices were only for those who were obedient or, or who failed to be obedient. But that was not Jesus, was it? Why would Jesus have to make a sacrifice? Jesus never failed to obey. He came and did exactly what God wanted. Something he knew none of us could ever do. So he sent his son to do it for us to be obedient for us. Meaning his sacrifice accomplished what no Old Testament sacrifice could ever do. Just as David replaced Saul, Jesus replaced all the failed mediators and the sacrificial system and the failed covenant. David, having announced his arrival in partial fulfillment of God's promises in verse 6 through 8, he then recounts 
God's amazing character in verses 9 through 11. David uses the Hebrew word that will later be translated into the Greek, which we translated into English as evangelize. Meaning literally to preach the good news. David is seeking to preach the good news of the message of God's salvation. David, unlike so many of us, many times for selfish reasons, we, we fail to tell the truth about God. But David is not afraid. He's, he's not afraid to share where his hope comes from, where his salvation comes from. He, he doesn't care what other people think. He doesn't care how they're going to look at him. He doesn't care because he knows that apart from God, he is nothing. And so many of us forget that, I think. David would not hide or suppress the truth about God's character. So David is gathering everyone into the assembly to declare that God has kept his promises to deliver the faithful and do justice against the wicked. David is, is, is preaching and showing us how God upholds the truth of his word. And most importantly, showing his loving kindness by accomplishing salvation on their behalf. See, Jesus, Jesus came and lived the perfect life of obedience. He came and lived and did exactly what God wanted. But he didn't stop there. He could have. That's exactly what God wanted. But instead, because he knew that not a single person in this room could do that. He also offered himself up as a sacrifice. Providing for you the obedience that you or I could ever attain to. Christ came, became our obedience. Christ became our righteousness. Do you see why David is praising God? Do, do you see why God, why, why, why David can't help but declare the good news of salvation? Because God did it, not David. David's installment as king is just an example of, of the truth of God's character. And God's ability to accomplish salvation on his behalf. In the same way that Jesus coming and dying, living that perfect life of obedience that God desired, accomplished salvation on our behalf. And that leads us into the last section, God's deliverance. David here in the last section focused on celebrating God's character in verses 9 through 11. But in this last section, he now returns to the two reasons that we, like he, needs God. David, like us, needs to be delivered from his own sin. And second, he needs God to deliver him from those in the world that would do him harm. And let's look at each of those separately this morning as we wrap up. 
First, David describes the way sin works in verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head, and my heart fails me. David's sin is so many that, that he feels as though he is completely surrounded by sin. This morning, have you ever looked into the depths of your heart and had this experience? Where, where everywhere you look, it's just, it's just sin. It, it, just, it, it just feels as though it's, it's just all around you. David, upon having this experience, says not only have they the, the sin of my heart surrounded me, but it's overtaken me and it's blinded me. I, I can't even see. Seeing all his sin has led him to feeling discouraged. My heart fails me, he says. Why? Because he knows Apart from God's help, he alone can never defeat sin. Guys, this is, this is important for us this morning. I don't want you to live here, but you have to visit here from time to time. You have to look into your heart and be reminded of just how sinful you are. And, and some of you may have been walking this life of sanctification. And listen, you've come a long way from those initial sins that were dragging you down and surrounding you. But if you're walking with Christ, and if you're growing with Christ, you're going to start to realize that there is way more sin than you at first realized. That the motives of your heart are more wicked than you could have ever imagined when you started this journey. And it's important that we stop and we realize that. that this is what keeps a Christian from getting prideful. This, this is what keeps a, a Christian from becoming a Pharisee. Looking in the mirror. Being reminded of our own sinfulness. Being reminded, though, also of how God has delivered us from so much of our sinfulness. Again, I, I don't want you to live here. This isn't a place where I want you to be like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to live in this morbid, introspection, navel-gazing kind of place where I'm just looking at my... No, that's not... Don't live here, but you've got to visit here. You, you've got to come to these places to be reminded of how wicked you are and how desperate you are in need of someone to save you. Because when you do, it enables you to go and evangelize and preach the good news just, just as David has been doing in the previous section. Because he knows it's not about him. It's what God has done. Some of you this morning, the reason why you fail to preach the good news, the reason why you fail to love your neighbor as yourself is because you've forgotten just how wicked your heart is 
and was. And you start to think, I, I got a pretty good handle on this. And that becomes dangerous because then you begin to look around and go, why don't you have a better handle on this? Why, 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 are, you still, why are you still messing with that? Why is that still a problem for you? Right? Why, why can't you just get over it? That's what I did. I just got over it. I don't have a sin problem because I don't look in the mirror anymore. Just stop looking in the mirror. And by mirror, I mean God's Word. Reading what God requires. The, the obedience that He desires. That we constantly fail at. And this leads David to cry out in verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Not, not, God, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm going to work, I'm, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. So when you're in this place, when you get to this point in your life, you realize there ain't nothing you can do but cry out like David and say, Lord, be pleased to deliver me. And don't be slow about it. Right? Or in David's words, make haste to help me. I don't want to stay here. I don't want to be here. And apart from you, I'm stuck. You are the only way forth. David pleads for God to save him from his sin quickly. Second, David prays and asks God to shame all those who, do, who wish to do harm for him. And some of you, you got that part of the prayer down. You're, you're all about that part of the prayer. But I want you to notice why David does it, because I don't think it's the same reason we do it oftentimes. David does it so that people, that the people of the Lord would rejoice at his salvation, causing them to worship and praise God even more. Leading them to, to sing, great is the Lord. David ends this psalm in verse 17 by identifying with the poor and needy. Verse 17, he says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You see, when we see our sin clearly, we will be reminded just how poor and needy we are. Now, in our culture, the last thing you want to do is be poor and needy, right? And yet, that is exactly what David is claiming to be. Again, chronologically, as he is being installed as the king over all of Israel, David says, I am poor and needy. Why? Well, it's because David knows something about the Lord that many of us don't know. 
And for those of us who do know, we tend to forget this very quickly for some reason. See, David knows that the Lord loves those who are poor and needy. The Lord resists the prideful and self-reliant. The Lord loves those who are poor and needy. And he resists the prideful and the self-reliant. So much of religion falls into that prideful and self-reliant. I'm going to educate myself to God. I'm going to do enough good works to make God happy. There's no amount of knowledge. There's no amount of good works that can ever give you the righteousness you need. The reason is because you have failed to be obedient. If you've broken just one law, you've already failed. But the good news this morning, the great news this morning, is that God loves the poor and the needy. Those who realize their own sin. They're able to acknowledge that, that need. I mean, in, in David's words, that desperation for God's deliverance. And this morning, I, I hope and I pray that you will see your need. That, that you can come to this place like David to say, I'm poor and needy. I can't do it on my own apart from you. I need Christ's perfect obedience to be able to be saved. Let's pray. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would just convict our hearts. Show us, Lord, our sin. Again, not, not so that we would leave here discouraged, God, but we would leave here encouraged because you are for the poor and needy. Jesus lived that perfect life of obedience that we could never attain to. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would just impress on our hearts our need for that obedience because that is what you desire. And Lord, that we would turn to you. Father, it is you that gives salvation. That, that opens 
our eyes so that we might be able to, to see and not be blinded by our sin like David was. Lord, open our eyes this morning. Help us to see. So that we might turn to you. Receiving Christ's obedience, his righteousness, Lord. And that we would leave this place praising you and telling the good news just as David is doing in Psalm 40. As you have delivered him by your faithful word. Lord, you promised to deliver us by your faithful word as well. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.